Welcome back to Chris in the afternoon. Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on this lovely Friday afternoon. It is snowing here in this part of Michigan, and I'm I for one am enjoying it. But I'm also aware that many Michiganders do not, in fact, like the snow. So let's keep everyone in prayers. Those who enjoy it, pray for us and our sanity. Those who don't enjoy it, let's pray for us and our safety. For this segment, we'll be talking with a good friend of mine, Dr. Kevin Clark, Dean of the Institute for Lay Ministry and Associate Professor at Sacred Heart University, uh, Sacred Heart Major Seminary. We will be discussing a certain event that took place lately. Uh, Alasdair McIntyre, he's, he's considered one of the greatest Catholic philosophers of uh, his generation, the last generation. And he, he, was, he was and still is one of the formative influences for, for a lot of philosophical, Catholic philosophical intellectual development. Unfortunately, he recently, during, uh, during the fall conference for the De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame, he delivered the keynote lecture, and the, the, the lecture is available online. It's called The Apparent Oddness of the Universe, How to Account for It. And within this lecture, he argues that the Catholic tradition, it's theological and philosophical tradition, has been a little excessive in hailing and praising the omniscience of God, particularly when it comes to future events. In other words, McIntyre very simply states, God cannot know any more than you and I can about the future. The statement uh, that's attributed to him simply says this, until a free created agent finally makes his or her decision, God cannot know any more than you and I can. To talk with us about how the church fathers specifically referenced the foreknowledge of God, this is called divine foreknowledge, is Dr. Kevin Clark. As I mentioned, he's the dean of the Institute for Lay Ministry at Sacred Heart. His research, which intersects with various theological and exegetical themes, has primarily focused upon biblical interpretation in early Christianity. He has a special heart for the Church Father's spiritual exegesis of the Old Testament, and he reads for content that harmonizes both Old and New Testaments, specifically St. Maximus the Confessor and his interpretation of Scripture in the 7th century. Kevin, it is so good to hear you on the side of the radio. How are you doing, brother? I'm doing very well, Marcus, and uh, it's great to hear your voice again. You know, uh, Marcus and I, we were we were down at Ave Maria together uh, for a time, and uh, and so it's. I feel like I've chased you all over the country, first uh, to to California, and now back here to Michigan. That's actually but, uh, true. You know, yeah. you mentioned <laughs> you, you you mentioned the snow, and I, I have to share um, this precious anecdote. Uh, when we were in when we were in California, uh, well, well, before our three years in California, we had one year in St. Louis where I was a visiting professor at Kenrick Glennon, mm-hmm. and while while we were there, my children got a taste of snow, right? Mm-hmm. And so, the, our three years in California, our youngest daughter was praying the whole time that it would snow. But we were we were also gardening, and they didn't want the snow to destroy uh, my, my wife Natasha's plants. And so they, she prayed very specifically that it would snow, but not on Mama's plants. So <laughs> I got the job here, moved to Michigan. I thought it was a, a strangely specific uh, prayer intention at the time, but I got the job, moved to uh, moved to Michigan, and what do I notice? But the in order to winterize the plants, you have to move them indoors. So now it's snowing, but not on Mama's plants. <laughs> so in, in the order of instrumental causality, God's God's will was done. Their prayer was answered, except Daddy was the one who enabled it to happen. Yes, he 
he an- answered that prayer in a very specific way because it's snowing right now, but not on the plants. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, you know, you and I uh, chatted briefly, very briefly, about uh, this whole situation with, with LSD McIntyre's statement, and I don't want to g- get into the weeds of McIntyre's entire corpus of work, uh, but the presumption is that the divine nature is incapable of. Uh, con- foreknowledge of contingent events. But uh, you made a statement, Kevin, that, which is what prompted me to want to reach out to you, uh, that, the, that the church fathers seem to be unanimous in understanding God's, uh, God's foreknowledge. So uh, you, you're the expert on, on patristics as far as I'm concerned. So just, just let us know, what do the fathers say about God's foreknowledge? Well, yeah, just uh, real quick about uh, McIntyre's, that on this note, he seems to be uh, following... A uh, philosopher named uh, Geach, who was the uh, husband of Elizabeth Anscombe, another philosopher. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you want to learn more about um, the the response to uh, this this keynote lecture, th- there's a fantastic article by a friend of mine, Urban Hannon. Oh yes, uh, yes. On the Josias, it's called. If you wanted to Google it, it's called "God's Knowledge of Future Contingents: A Response mm-hmm. to Alistair McIntyre." And and so, um, Urban does a great job of of going in and unpacking this in more depth. Um, you know, it, it's obviously philosophically quite problematic to suggest that God wouldn't know somehow <laughs> what we would choose up until up until the the moment that uh, we choose it. We have, we have to remember that God is an eternal being, mm-hmm. and so all time is present to him all at once. And, and so, um, you know, as, as an eternal, uh, in, in God's eternity, he, he doesn't respond to the, the, the passage of time in, in, that, in the way that we do. Right. He's not confined uh, by the linear progression um, of time the fathers, as we are. Though, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, regarding the fathers, uh, the, the the question of foreknowledge what is, is is all over the patristic era, um, especially the, the the question of predestination, mm-hmm. uh, which was no small controversy in the patristic era and no small controversy today. But the the idea that um, that God uh, foreknows uh, something. He, especially with with Augustine and some of his, um, you know, some of the, the the Latin school, we really have the focus on this in um, in the response to uh, the, the Manichaeans mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. And, and some of the anti-Pelagian works, right? Yep. Um, so. For example, there is um, uh, a, a church father named Fulgentius. Mm-hmm. Fulgentius of Ruspe. I'm just going to read a brief quote uh, from Fulgentius, and and he says, um, according to correct faith and clear truth, in the case of a child who is taken from this life without the benefit of the second birth, we must admit that just as God foreknew the child's future death which was actually going to happen. So it is also absurd to say that God foreknew the child's future sins, which were not going to occur. Mm-hmm. For God, the author of all things, has not foreknown the things which would not be done as if they were to be done. 
for we know that God's foreknowledge is so true and unchangeable that the things he foreknows as going to happen will surely happen, and that he may not foreknow something that will not happen according to his foreknowledge as if it were going to happen, and so on. Right. So it's interesting how nuanced this is, even in the patristic era, mm-hmm. uh, recognizing that uh, you know the knowledge of God is deeply linked with the truth of things. Mm-hmm. And so, if something isn't going to come to be, then it's not true. Then God doesn't foreknow it, right? Right. Exactly. Um, I'm talking to Dr. Kevin Clark. <laughs> Sorry, Kevin, just, just uh, very quickly. Talking to Dr. Kevin, Kevin Clark, Dean and Professor of Sacred Heart Major Seminary. So, uh, Kevin, just based on uh, your quote from uh, Fulgentius, what's the distinction to be made here between predestination and predetermination? Because McIntyre seems to be playing off of that, but even if he doesn't, that seems to be the prevalent debate that comes up in God's divine foreknowledge. Right. Um, and... You know, this also gets into the the whole uh, problematic of of uh, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, mm-hmm. um, which you know you you have different schools of thought within the patristic era itself of you know whether it's God's foreknowledge of the future sins of Esau that led to his being uh, quote hated. Or um, you, you know how that how that all works out, and of course, um, you know predestination. We, Catholics we do hold for predestination. In fact, um, uh, a, a really good uh, uh, work on on this in terms of predestination, problem of evil. I'd really point you to the work of uh, of of Taylor O'Neill, mm-hmm. uh, who's whose work on on predestination was published by uh, CUA Press, and he'd be a, a really fantastic guest on this uh, on this topic if you wanted to uh, go deeper as well. He has mm-hmm. a much better radio voice than than I do, but um, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, I you you could really uh, go in deep here, but um, uh, I, I don't know how much. Uh, your your listeners want to hear of, <laughs> of this. I, I'm thinking that, uh, um, you know, Augustine, though, is really crucial in terms of uh, the, um, you know, the, the idea of predestination and the foreknowledge of, of good and evil. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd recommend especially his his work, his answer to Faustus, and, uh, and also... Um, perhaps Ambrosiaster and, and Fulgentius, if you want to uh, read more on this topic. Right. And, you know, you're such a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the Church Fathers, uh, Kevin. So uh, just in light in light of, of, you know, these statements that have been made, uh, we're going to continue this conversation uh, for you listeners. Uh, we're going to continue the conversation with, with Dr. Kevin Clark on the other side of the break uh, by discussing the authorship of the Letter to the Hebrews. I'd like to co- close off this portion of the conversation, however, by also quoting a very early church writer, Aristides of Athens, who says, God who is incorruptible and unchanging and invisible, but he sees all things and changes them, alters them as he wills. Now, this is one of the earliest uh, 
takes, if you will, on divine foreknowledge. But the most important thing, thing to understand is our God is truly omniscient. So, uh, Kevin, we ask you to stay with us as we continue on in the program. We have just about under a minute for this segment. For those of you listeners who'd like to connect with Dr. Kevin Clark, reach out to him at Sacred Heart Major Seminary. His email address and contact information uh, on the website. Welcome back to Crescent in the Afternoon. Marcus Peter, last segment of the hour, of the second hour of the show on this Friday afternoon. I'm filling in for Al Cresta. Please continue to pray for Al and the work we do here at Ave Maria Radio and EWTN. Talking to Dr. Kevin Clark, Dean of the Institute of Lay Ministry and Associate Professor at Sacred Heart Major Seminary, we just discussed the concept of divine foreknowledge, the fact that God knows the future despite the fact that it hasn't happened in our linear time. We're going to continue the conversation with Dr. Clark, Kevin, with a discussion on who wrote Hebrews. Now, for those of you who have even a smeltering of biblical studies, you're going to understand that this is a no-brainer. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. But a recent Final Jeopardy question is sparking controversy. Now, the clue read this way. Paul's letter to them the new te- is the New Testament epistle with the most Old Testament quotations. Now, the supposed answer, the answer that they accepted, was the letter to the Hebrews, wherein lies the problem. And it's caused an outcry. People, people are just uh, are just furious at this, and uh, largely because scholars dispute the claim that Paul was the author. So, Kevin, let's let's hop right into this discussion. Uh, why? First of all, well, uh, yeah, just just tell us tell us what's going on with this event. Yeah, th- this was th- this was just hel- hilarious. I mean, the, the the Jeopardy question was poorly written. I mean, <laughs> it, it takes as a foregone conclusion that uh, that Paul's that the letter was written by Paul, which is a minority position in, uh, quite a minority position in, um, in in biblical scholarship. So, you know, it, one answered uh, Hebrews, and that was correct, and another answered uh, Romans, and <laughs> that was incorrect. <laughs> so, Anyway, and the guy who answered Philippians, I think, uh, ended up uh, winning the, uh, the the Jeopardy uh, game. But it was it was final Jeopardy, so it was uh, it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, but the the outcry, I think, is what what was most fascinating to me because you you had academics on Twitter saying essentially that it was certainly known and established that Paul did not write Hebrews. <laughs> and that claim is frankly absurd. It's not it's not <laughs> certain. If we, if we don't know who wrote Hebrews, then, then it can't be certain that Paul that didn't write Hebrews. <laughs> right. And and in fact, um you know, we'll we'll, we'll look at some of the um you know, one of the main theories is is that Apollos is the author of mm-hmm. Hebrews. Um, Apollos is mentioned in the Acts 
of the Apostles, Acts 18, mm-hmm. uh, verses 24 to 19:7. And so he was he was a Jew from Alexandria, eloquent and versed in the scriptures. So that kind of puts him on our radar as as someone who's with Paul at Corinth, for example. Right, exactly. Um, he's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And so he's an interesting candidate. And in fact, in fact, Martin Luther had made the argument that uh, Apollos was the author to the Epistle to the Hebrews. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem, though, is that uh, the theory kind of forces us to force a quill into Apollos's hand, but there there's really no data to suggest that he was the author of this letter. It's not like we can, um, you know, uh, we we have a, a, a host of works of Apollos that we can compare Hebrews to. Right, right. And so, what we do have are a number of works from the hand of the Apostle Paul, mm-hmm. and even though. Uh, biblical philology can show that uh, you know these these works or Hebrews is philologically somewhat different from the thirteen letters of Paul. Although now their uh, biblical scholars are, are questioning, um, you know, there's there's now uh, a growing number of disputed Paul lines, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but if you look, if you look at the text of Hebrews, um, you can see why the uh, the organizers of the canon put Hebrews right after the Pauline epistles. Mm-hmm. It's very, very Pauline. Uh, in fact, a professor of mine at uh, from Franciscan University he guest um, uh, taught a course on the Epistle to the Hebrews. Uh, Father James Swetnam mm-hmm, was mm-hmm. a uh, professor at the Pontifical Biblical Institute, mm-hmm. and in his work, his expertise on Hebrews, he argues that the, um, the that Paul is writing to Jewish Christians in Rome. Mm, right, and the the difference the, the difference in between the other Pauline letters and this Pauline letter. I mean, one of the one of the most obvious differences is that there's no attribution to Paul himself. Uh, But Paul, remember, is the apostle to the Gentiles. And here, Hebrews is being written to to the Jews, uh, to the Hebrews, or or Jewish Christians, I should say. So we could understand that, you know, maybe there is, that might help to explain a a slightly uh, different uh, tone. But... um, uh, and there are some other similarities that I think are really fascinating theologically. Um, just to pull out a couple of data points, I mean, if you look at, uh, uh, for example, the word epangelia, mm-hmm. which is uh, uh, means promise, right? Or its verb form, uh, which means, I, you know, I promise. I promise. So, so the word promise is really important theologically for the author to... Hebrews. Mm. Uh, he he uses this word uh, a whopping eighteen times. Mm. Where did, where else does it occur uh, occur in the New Testament? It occurs nine times in Romans, twice in Second Corinthians, eleven times in Galatians, four times in Ephesians, 
four times in the uh, letters to Timothy, once in Titus, but most of it's in in, in Hebrews, like the um, and so it it doesn't really occur as much outside of the uh, the, the Pauline uh, epistles if we account if yep. we count Hebrews, right? Absolutely. Um, uh, just going to pause you right there, Kevin. I've uh, been talking to Dr. Kevin Clark, yeah. Dean of the Institute for Lay Ministry and Associate Professor at Sacred Heart Major Seminary. So just like you mentioned, that, that word for, for promise, epangelia, it's very prominent in the Pauline corpus. And very often it has to do with promises made in old covenants that are fulfilled in Christ in the new covenant. So where, where did, uh, yes. in, and in the early church, especially in the Western tradition, especially by, you know, somewhere along the third, fourth and fifth centuries, we, we get this kind of push to to consider that Paul is, in fact, the author to the Hebrews. Uh, are there any church fathers that contributed to this idea? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Origen is uh, it's a key figure. Now, now Origen is often cited as a, a Pauline authorship skeptic. Mm-hmm. However, uh, Origen said that he hoped to write a demonstration that Hebrews was, in fact, written by Paul. Uh, we don't have that work. Perhaps he wrote it and it was destroyed. Much of Origen's work was mm-hmm. destroyed. But, um, but, but really, the Pauline attribution uh, of this letter does date back into the patristic era. Um, so, and it's not really until uh, much later on, especially after the uh, after the Reformation, that this uh, is, is starting to. Uh, come more into into question, mm-hmm. and in fact, the um, the uh, uh, what's now the the CDF, uh, the Holy Office, had answered some questions about whether one can question the um, various uh, things in the Bible, authorship theories, and whatnot. And it's perfectly legitimate for uh, for Catholics to uh, hold the position that Hebrews was not written by. Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so there's there's room to explore uh, other authorship theories, but you know, just in in my opinion, just, you know, having um, studied Paul and having studied Hebrews, uh, if, if you look, <laughs> another really great example is in Second Corinthians three, the relation of the two covenants, mm-hmm. um, and then you compare that with Hebrews eight. Uh, the, um, the 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 way that the the authors of these two epistles, or the author of these two epistles, <laughs> depending on your position, holds the holds the two covenants in relation is very very similar. So either either uh, Paul wrote both, or uh, Paul is the inspiration for the author to the Hebrews. So right. You know, so uh, you, you, I don't know if you'd remember this, but you and I talked about this. Ratzinger is, to this day, still my favorite biblical theologian, and he makes Scripture sing and soar in ways that, that I find rare anywhere else. And he holds the position that Barnabas penned the letter to the Hebrews, but with Pauline influence during their travels. And regardless of whatever speculation there is in authorship, there seems to be some some attribution to Pauline influence, if not direct Pauline authorship. Right. And, you know, who knows uh, what 
happened when when this when this epistle was was being written. I mean, we see in Romans, for example, that um, th- that you have a scribe Tertius writing in um, you know for Paul. Uh, perhaps there's something like this going on here, or perhaps Paul is writing for a different kind of genre. Maybe mm-hmm. he's writing something quasi-liturgical. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's it's a really interesting question, but I, I thought the Jeopardy thing was, was <laughs> fascinating how, uh, you know, people get so, uh, so bent out of shape when, when the, uh, uh, the, the, the regnant scholarly orthodoxy is questioned, and this is really still a question that's at the level of theory, right. and you're free to hold, you know, one or the other. Nothing is, is established in terms of the authorship of Hebrews. So the conclusion is Jeopardy was wrong. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> Jeopardy was wrong to to put the question that way. But, you know, what what's kind of lost in this is the beauty with which Hebrews uses the Old Testament. Mm. Um, and th- that hits the reader right off from, from the get-go. Right. In Hebrews 1, when uh, the Apostle starts to uh, talk about how much greater the name of Jesus is over that, even of the angels, because he is son. You know, to what, what angel has God uh, spoken to him as son? And the, um, you know, the, uh, the the quotation of the Psalms, uh, you know, the, the, the testing of, at the waters, the uh, very lengthy quotation in Hebrews 8 of Jeremiah 31, the New Covenant passage, I think is the longest Old Testament quote in the whole New Testament. Mm. Um, there, there's just so much beauty there. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, and then... One last thing is that finally in Hebrews 11, you have this, almost like this whole story of salvation history uh, in in the lived faith of the various patriarchs, matriarchs, prophets, and and, uh, folks all throughout the uh, Old Covenant. Uh, and, uh, and, And the Apostle says, of whom the world was not worthy. Oh yeah, that's that's amazing, and we could go on for a long time, Kevin. I've been talking to Dr. Kevin Clark, is the dean who, who is the dean of Institute for Lay Ministry and associate professor at Sacred Heart Major Seminary. Follow his work at Sacred Heart Major Seminary and look out for books that he authors. He's a brilliant and succinct author. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon. <laughs> 